This afternoon, I'm going to try to combine, which is a dangerous thing, both preaching and instruction. In other words, there'll be part of what I do that will be intentionally proclamational, but other parts of it will be instructive in terms of thinking about uh, the assignment that we have when it comes to preaching. Uh, There's a reason for this. For the first 13 years that I was involved in theological education, I was a professor of theology. I taught systematic theology for five years at Crystal College. I taught systematic theology here for four years and then uh, went to Southern Seminary uh, in 1996 and taught systematic theology there for another three or four years until uh, my very good friend, very dear friend, Al Moeller, came to me and said, what would you think about shifting from teaching theology to teaching preaching? And before I was able to answer the question, he said, here's my, my rationale. He said, first of all, it's just a fact. We do not have a great difficulty in finding professors of systematic theology. But we have a very hard time in finding professors of preaching. Uh, in fact, those that tend to be good at it uh, usually wind up in local churches and they get involved in the ministry there. And it's very hard to get them to move back into a teaching context like a Bible college or a seminary. Uh, he also said, you know, you do preach a lot. And even then I was preaching about 35 to 40 weeks out of the year in different churches around uh, our nation. And he says, you preach a lot. You obviously love it. You study it, even though it's not your discipline. And we desperately need some help in our Ph.D. program and our D-Men program. So what would you think about uh, shifting your primary focus into the area of preaching? And I prayed about it and thought about it. And as a result of his encouragement, I did so. And since then, uh, though I still teach some in the area of theology, most of my time is spent on the college level, the master's level, the D-Men level and the Ph.D. level. Uh, in the areas of preaching and also in the area of hermeneutics. And so I do have a great love for preaching. I have a great interest in it. I study it. I watch it. I listen to a lot of preaching. And so it is very much uh, a passion of mine, always has been, but even more so now as it is something that I do in the academic context. Uh, As I've studied preaching then uh, intently over these last several years, I would say to you that I've not really come across much that is original. Certainly, I've not come across much that has been new to me. If you go back and study the masters, even those in the contemporary setting who are saying good things are, for the most part, repeating what has been said uh, before. But over the years, there is one statement that I have come to believe, one axiom I've come to believe. And at least to this point, I've never found it anywhere else. And so this may be the only original thought I've ever had. Of course, as soon as I share it, you're going to one of you bring a book up and say, oh, no, no, this was said by such and such 475 years ago when you will burst my bubble. And that's okay. Uh, I, I can deal with that. But as I thought about preaching, especially in a 21st century Western context, there is an axiom that I repeat throughout the semester to my students. that goes something like this. What you say is more important than how you say it. But how you say it has never been more important. What you say, the content, the stuff of preaching is more important than how you say it. 
But how you say it has never been more important. You say, why? Competition. You and I live in a technologically advanced age. You and I live in a mass media age. Uh, The fact of the matter is the people that you minister to and that you preach to week in and week out now have at their fingertips so many different avenues for hearing good preaching that if you don't also say it well, you will find that it will be more and more difficult to receive a hearing from your people. Now, you might want to argue with me for just a moment this afternoon that what I am saying is grounded in some kind of pragmatism or expediency. But I would respond very quickly. No, Uh, what I'm saying has biblical foundation and theological warrant. And I want you to find that with me this afternoon. Take your Bible and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, words of wisdom from the preacher on preaching. Words of wisdom from the preacher on preaching. He comes to the end of the 12th and final chapter. And I believe it was Solomon who penned this book along with Ecclesiastes, or with Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the Proverbs. And I really believe there's a real sense in which the Proverbs man and the man of wisdom of Psalm 1 provides the foundation for what is said here in verses 9 through the end of the chapter. And so listen to what the preacher has to say about preaching, verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out. And set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. You may have a marginal reading that says delightful words. And that would be a very fine translation of the text there. He sought to find acceptable, delightful words. And what was written was upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these of many of of the making of many books. There is no end and much study is wearisomeness to the flesh. So let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or or evil. And so I do believe there is a plumb line, a dictum, a, an axiom, if you like, a homiletical must statement that is grounded in the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. That is what we say is more important than how we say it. But how we say it is certainly important. In fact, I believe someone no less than Martin Lloyd-Jones would affirm and agree with what I'm saying because Dr. Jones said concerning uh, preaching, what is preaching? Logic on fire. Eloquent reason. Are these contradictions? Of course, they are not. Logic, uh, the what? The content of preaching. Fire. How you deliver the wonderful teachings of the Word of God. Eloquent. Again, how it is that you relay and communicate the biblical truth. And reason the what. 
So Martin Lloyd-Jones said there is logic, there is reason, but there is fire, and also there is eloquence. Now, I acknowledge that in this text, the author of Ecclesiastes has primarily in mind that word which is written, because that's exactly what he says there in verse 10, words that are written uprightly, words of truth. And yet I would submit to all of us this afternoon that the words that are written are also often the words that are proclaimed. And therefore, the instruction that he gives in this particular text has to do not only with what we write and what we read, but also what we say and what we hear. And so what I want to do simply this afternoon is unwrap these verses and allow them to give us some guidance and direction from the preacher on preaching. And basically, three words drive this particular text that I will try to unfold for you. One is the word instruction. The other is the word admonition. And the final word is the word exhortation. And again, I would argue that good, faithful preaching will involve each of those three, instruction, admonition, and also exhortation. And so the first thing that uh, Solomon says to us is this in verse 9 and 10, that faithful preaching involves instruction. He begins by saying, because the preacher, the NIV translates it, the teacher, because the preacher was wise, what? He had a certain approach or a certain strategy that shaped and, and guided his teaching ministry. He uses the word knowledge and he uses the word truth. But then he says they were delivered with acceptable or delightful words. That is moving to verse 13 words that led his students to do what? Number one, fear God. And number two, to keep his commandments. In other words, Solomon simply says that the faithful preacher will teach his students the content, the knowledge, the truth of the word of God. God indeed provides the message. We simply are the messengers. Uh, this particular school is unique in that we have four confessions of faith. Uh, we affirm the Baptist faith and message 2000. We affirm the abstract of principles of, of 1858. We we also affirm the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And also, we affirm the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Well, following the statement on inerrancy was a later statement on hermeneutics. And in Article 25, you read this from the Chicago Statement concerning preaching. We affirm that the only type of preaching which sufficiently conveys the divine revelation and its proper application to life is that which faithfully expounds the text of Scripture as the Word of God. We deny that the preacher has any message from God apart from the text of Scripture. And so because the preacher of Ecclesiastes was indeed a faithful preacher, he was a faithful expositor. I would even add he was an engaging expositor. Now, when one is faithful and when one is engaging, what will be the content and the elements that are essential for that kind of preaching? Well, first of all, there's going to be a didactic or a teaching element. The wise preacher, it says, will impart knowledge to his people. In other words, he is going to be primarily concerned, not exclusively, but primarily concerned about the content, the stuff of what he is saying. I am fond of using the phrase theological 
exposition. Because I think faithful preaching indeed has both of those components. A faithful explaining of the text of Scripture. But I think you come up short if you do not also draw out the theological implications of that preaching as well. And indeed, I believe such a preaching agenda, such a preaching philosophy is the only reasonable and defensible strategy given the nature of the Bible as divine revelation. When I was first um, called to ministry and I was led by my pastor and his guidance to go to a Bible college, I was introduced to a preaching professor who made the statement, good preachers listen to great preachers. And as a result of that, he began to challenge us to listen to men that were good, effective faithful expositors of the Word of God. And, and I would say to you today at the 52-year mark in my life and the 31st year in ministry, no one has impacted my life in terms of preaching more than John MacArthur. I probably have in my library across the street several thousand cassette tapes, which of course I know dates me, but several thousand cassette tapes of Dr. MacArthur. I now have CDs from Dr. MacArthur. I now rejoice I can go online and listen to anything and everything that is there. And John MacArthur has been, I think, a real model and a real hero in this particular area. And he understands this theological foundation with respect to why we treat the, teach, uh, teach and treat the Bible expositionally. In fact, Dr. MacArthur says it this way, the only logical response to an errant scripture is to preach it expositionally. By expositionally, I mean preaching in such a way. That the meaning of the Bible passage is presented entirely and exactly as it was intended. Recently, a student of mine asked me, uh, Dr. Aiken, do you believe there are a lot of men out there who think that they are expositors who in actuality are not? And to my uh, dismay, I had to say yes. There are many men that think simply because they open the Bible, read some verses, and make some comments about those verses, that that qualifies them as an expositor of the Word of God. But I believe that is a faulty conclusion. I again agree with John, who says they present the text entirely and exactly as it was intended by God. And so good preaching will always have knowledge. It will always have content. Good preaching will always have a strong teaching element. Without it, your preaching may be entertaining, but it will not be nourishing. Your preaching may indeed cause people to applaud your ability to communicate, but it is what I call cotton candy preaching. It tastes really good when you eat it, but ten minutes later you are starved because there's no nourishment in what they just received. Walt Kaiser, more than 25 years ago, acknowledged and pinpointed the malady of so much shallow cotton candy preaching in our pulpits today. In fact, he said it this way, and I quote, It is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health in many places of the world. She has been languishing because she has been fed junk food. The biblical text is often no more than a slogan or refrain in the message. Biblical exposition has become a lost art in contemporary preaching. 
the most neglected of all biblical sections is the Old Testament, over three-fourths of divine revelation. Motto preaching may please the masses in that it is filled with a lot of epigrammatic or proverbial slogans and interesting anecdotes, but it will always be a powerless word lacking the authority and validation of Scripture. And perhaps the prince of expositors in terms of teaching over the last 20 to 30 years, Haddon Robinson reminds us in this way, when a preacher fails to preach the Scriptures, he abandons his authority. He confronts his hearers no longer with a word from God, but only another word from men. And so there is a strong uh, knowledge component to preaching. But also, I believe there is a logical uh, uh, component to preaching as well. In other words, there is rhyme and reason to what we say. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, it is not disjointed, it is not disconnected, but there is a logically compelling argument that will always accompany good, faithful exposition. Sidney Gradanus, in his book, The Modern Preacher in the Ancient Text, says it so very well. Biblical preaching is a Bible-shaped word imparted in a Bible-like way. In expository preaching, the biblical text is neither a conventional introduction to a sermon on a largely different theme, nor a convenient peg on which to hang a rag bag of miscellaneous thoughts, but a master which dictates and controls what is said. In other words, the manner in which the preacher delivers the knowledge of God's Word is critically important. It does matter. How you say what you say. In fact, if you look at verse 9, you'll see that Solomon highlights three of these. He says, first of all, he pondered. That is, he weighed carefully what he wrote and what he said. Secondly, he sought out. That is, he dug deep into the knowledge content uh, that he would present. In fact, I would add uh, parenthetically, no Saturday night special here. Uh, no, just showing up in the study late Saturday night and trying to throw something together very quickly. Again, in my own approach to preaching, I have followed the model that was set forth by W.A. Criswell uh, for many, many years, uh, with one slight exception. Dr. Criswell gave every day of the week to sermon preparation. And he would begin on Sunday and then really dig into it on Monday through Friday. In fact, it was always Dr. Crystal's theme, give your mornings to God. And so from 8 to 12, Monday through Friday, Dr. W. A. Crystal would be in the study preparing rich, wonderful expositions of Scripture. I believe that you have to do something like that so that you're allowing God throughout the week to take his word and allow his word first and foremost to germinate inside of you. And then once God's Word has done its work in you, you're now in a position to let God's work do its work in the life of your people. So he pondered, he sought out, and then it says, he set in order many proverbs. In other words, he carefully considered how best to deliver these sayings, how best to deliver these wisdom words of truth. And in this particular context... The word proverb here doesn't really mean so much a, a, a pithy saying as it does a wisdom saying. It has more in, uh, in the context here of wise words. And so he is pointing out, he pondered, he sought out, and he set in order these wise words so that his people would be gripped by what they heard and they would be aided by the way in which he said it. In other words... 
the faithful expositor will be gripped by the realization that the book lying before him is filled with wisdom because it is nothing less than the very word of God. And therefore, he will tremble and he will be indeed at, at great fear at the thought of either manipulating the word or abusing the word. In other words, he will understand that he is under a divine mandate to honor the text in its context as it was given by the Holy Spirit of God. When I was in Bible college, I was introduced to a wonderful teacher of preaching by the name of Charles Kohler, who wrote a book entitled Expository Preaching Without Notes. Uh, I am trying to honor his former admonition. I am not honoring his latter admonition. And uh, again, I would quickly say to you all, though I was taught by my preaching professor to preach without notes, my word to you would be, you do what works best for you. Uh, some of you are masterfully gifted at preaching without notes. Some of you are an unmitigated disaster when it comes to preaching without notes. Uh, some of you, indeed, are wonderfully gifted at preaching with notes. And so simply uh, do what works best for you, given the way God has put you together. But Charles Kohler had great insight in this area. And listen to what he said in expounding the word of God. There is a grave responsibility upon the preacher to convey the truth without distortion. With eternities at stake, the hearers cannot afford to be in error, nor can the spiritual teacher whom they trust. Every man has a right to his opinion, but no man has a right to be wrong in his facts. The integrity of the pulpit demands accuracy, thoroughness, and a scrupulous regard for text and context. And so there is a teaching element to what we do. Uh, there is a logical element to what we do. But also there is a thoughtfulness to what we do as well. He says there in verse 10, the preacher sought out to find acceptable words. Or it could be translated delightful words. And what was written was upright. These were indeed words of truth. In other words, I believe you and I must work hard to find the right words that will feed the sheep of God under our protection. In other words, we will always seek to deliver what we say in the best possible way. Again, the phrase is acceptable words. The word can be translated delightful words or, or pleasing words. Let me say it to you this way. It is not only error that is a danger to truth. But dullness can also be a danger to truth. Beautiful truth ought to be packaged and wrapped in an attractive style. And indeed, Mark alluded to this earlier, but I'm now going to take my stand upon it. I do believe it's a sin to make the Bible boring. How in the world do you take the greatest book in the world and deliver it in a non-engaging, dull, and boring fashion? How do you do that? I think you have to work at it. Or maybe you don't work at it. And again, some of us who do have a strong theology of the word, I think can be seduced into thinking it doesn't matter how I deliver it as long as I am faithful to the content. Again, why should it be either or? Why should it be faithful content but a horrible delivery or a marvelous engaging delivery but no content? 
And again, I can point you to men across our nation and across our convention, some that are great in content, but horrible in delivery, some that are unbelievable communicators, but they just don't say anything. Why not bring it all together for the glory of God that we indeed present engaging expositions that honor the incredible, wonderful truth that is there? You see, good preaching, in my judgment, gives attention to both form and content, to both structure and substance, and it neglects neither and sees no need in sacrificing one or the other. Again, John MacArthur, I think, has some real wisdom here. The proper elements in an expository sermon may be summed up as follows. Preaching is expositional in purpose. It explains the text. Preaching is logical in flow. It persuades the mind. Preaching is doctrinal in content. It obligates the will. Preaching is pastoral in concern. It feeds the soul. Preaching is imaginative in pattern. It excites the emotions. And preaching is relevant in application. It touches the life. And again, for many of us, I think we must take note of those final things. It feeds the soul, it excites the emotion, and it touches the life. Again, my life has been greatly shaped by men like John MacArthur, but also my life has been shaped by the writings uh, and the preaching ministry of men like Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones surprisingly also had something to say, not just about the theological content of Scripture, but also about the manner of delivery as well. And so listen to the great doctor here when it comes to delivery. Be natural. Forget yourself. Be absorbed in what you are doing and in the realization of the presence of God and the glory and the greatness of the truth that you are preaching. Do this that you forget yourself completely. Self is the greatest enemy of the preacher, more so than in the case of any other man in society. And the only way to deal with self is to be so taken up with and so enraptured by the glory of what you are doing that you forget yourself altogether. But let him continue. A theology which does not take Fire, I maintain, is a defective theology, or at least the man's understanding of it is defective. Preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. A true understanding and experience of the truth must lead to this. I say again that a man who can speak about these things dispassionately, has no right whatsoever to be in a pulpit and should never be allowed to enter one. Now, that's the great doctor himself making those claims, and yet I think he was spot on when he made that declaration. Most of you in this room, of course, would also claim as a hero in preaching the great Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher of the 19th century. Spurgeon also was known for not only his great theological content in preaching, but also the fact that he was an incredible orator, an incredible proclaimer of the word. And here's what Spurgeon said when it comes to delivery. When I have thought of the preaching of certain good men, I have wondered not that the congregation was so small, but that it was so large. The people who listen to them ought to excel in the virtue of patience, for they have grand opportunities of exercising it. 
Some sermons and prayers lend a color of support to the theory of a Dr. William Hammond that the brain is not absolutely essential to life. Brethren, you will, none of you, covet earnestly the least gifts and the dullest mannerisms, for you can obtain them without the exertion of the will. No, labor to discharge your ministry, not with the lifeless method of an automaton, but with the freshness and power which will render your ministry largely effectual for its sacred purposes. And so the Bible says there has to be a teaching element to our instruction. There should be a logical flow to our instruction. There should be a thoughtfulness that takes into consideration not only content, but also delivery, delivery, but also, verse 10, there will be a truthfulness to our preaching that has the reality or the ring of reality. He says there, the preacher sought to find acceptable words, verse 10, and what was written was what? Upright words of truth. Words that are upright. Words that are correct, words that stand, but also words that are true. And, of course, I cannot help but again think of the Lord Jesus, who in his high priestly prayer reminds us as he prayed to his father, thy word is true. J.I. Packer, in combining something of a statement from the Westminster Dictionary, 1645, says it this way. We'll move to our second major idea this afternoon. The true idea of preaching is that the preacher should become a mouthpiece for his text. I like that a lot. He should become a mouthpiece for his text, opening it up and applying it as a word from God to his hearers. In order that the text may speak and be heard, making each point from his text in such a manner that his audience may discern the very voice of God. So the author of Ecclesiastes will remind us that faithful preaching, first and foremost, involves instruction. But secondly, verses 11 and 12, faithful preaching will also invite admonition. Solomon reminds us in verse 11, or informs us in verse 11, that the words of the wise are like goads which prick and nails that stick. In other words, they are words that will now move us into action, an action that ultimately will lead us to being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. In other words, good preaching will always have a knowledge content. In fact, I'll get to this in just a moment, but it will always answer the question, what do I want my people to know? But it will also always move to a second question, that is this, what do I want my people to do? And to answer one without the other, I believe, is to be incomplete in the assignment that God has given us. Again, I like what Charles Kohler said in this context. I quote, the supreme test of all preaching is what happens in the pew. To John the Baptist, there was accorded the highest tribute that could ever come to a minister of the gospel. When they had heard John, they followed Jesus. Well, as we admonish our people, what do we want to do? I think, first of all, we want to guide them. The Bible says wise words are like goads. In other words, they prod the sluggish and the hesitant into action. Uh, They have a power uh, to provide a mental and spiritual stimulus. If you like, they are to give us a spiritual shot in the arm. He also says 
Uh, they're like well-driven nails, which probably here the imagery is. They stabilize on this uh, in this regard. Uh, they give us something to to hang on things, uh, to hang things on. They they give us something that gives us sort of, as Leopold said, something of a mental uh, anchorage. Interestingly, at the end of verse 11, there is a direct or at least an indirect uh, uh, declaration or affirmation of divine inspiration. He's already talked about knowledge in verse 9. He's talked about words of truth in verse 10. But now he says, look at it, these things are given by one shepherd. Now, again, time would not allow, and maybe we can talk about this later in our panel. But I am a big fan of what I call intercanonical biblical theology. Intercanonical biblical theology. And I know that's a $25 word I would never use on a Sunday morning. But by that I mean, let the Bible in its totality shape your theology. So, for example, it is a real valuable thing from time to time to trace particular themes from the beginning of their mention in Scripture to the end of their mention in Scripture. Take, for example, the theme of the shepherd. Remember, Solomon is penning these words and his father penned Psalm 23. Ezekiel 34 has quite a bit to say about the role of both the good and the not so good shepherd. Micah 5, 2, that wonderful prophecy of the fact that the Lord Jesus would be born in Bethlehem also has a word to say to us about the one who will come and shepherd God's people. Of course, Jesus himself refers to himself in John 10 as the good shepherd. In fact, the Bible also says of him, he is the chief shepherd and the great shepherd. And then when you come to Revelation chapter 7, the final book of the Bible, and you see the great glorious throngs around the throne from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, they are reminded there in verse 15 and verse 16 that in that day there'll be no crying, no sorrow, no pain, because the Lamb will what? Be their shepherd. And all of that, I believe, from a canonical understanding would impact even my understanding of that simple phrase there in verse 11, that all of these things, this knowledge, these acceptable words, these words of truth, these words that are like goads and words that are like nails, they're given to us by one shepherd. And, of course, the shepherd guides us into those wonderful pastures and by those waters that we so desperately need. So these words are there to guide us. But these words are also there to guard us as well. Verse 12. And further, my son, be admonished by these. And then he gives us a very interesting, and of course, a very fun example for those of us involved in seminary life of books. There is of the making of many books. There is no end. And there is indeed much study. It, much study is indeed wearisome, wearisomeness to the flesh. You see, what I think he is saying is this. Now, quote J. Stafford Wright. It is possible to be a miser in accumulating knowledge instead of using it for the benefit of others. In fact, I think that's the great danger to those who come to seminary. If you're not careful in a seminary context, you can fill your head and at the same time empty your heart. And you can fill your mind with lots of knowledge, but though your mind is being filled with lots of knowledge, you're not becoming wiser. You're not becoming more godly. 
Yes, you may indeed be very intelligent, but intelligence does not always equate to wisdom. You see, it is, a, it is possible, is it not, to, um, to know a lot, but not be wise? And you see, God's design for our lives is not to make us smart uh, sinners. God's design is that we would become godly saints. And yet again, if we're not careful, those of us who live in the world of sacred things can allow the sacred things to become mundane. We can allow the sacred things to lose their sparkle and their beauty and their glory and their joy. And if we're not careful, as my good friend Al Jackson recently said in a chapel message at Southern Seminary, even those of us who are committed to a Great Commission resurgence within the Southern Baptist Convention can be seduced and led astray by the American dream. You say, oh, that's what my people are guilty of being seduced by. I would argue that all of us are in danger of that same seduction if we're not careful. I came across a poem that uh, just was entertaining to me, written by a man named Billy Barney. It's entitled, I Stayed Too Long at the Fair. And it hit me because I realized that if I'm not careful, I can linger too long at some of the vanity fairs of life and miss out on what really is important. Just let me share it with you as your mind relaxes for just a moment. I wanted the music to play on forever. Have I stayed too long at the fair? I wanted the clown to be constantly clever. Have I stayed too long at the fair? I bought me blue ribbons to tie up my hair, but I couldn't find anyone to care. The merry-go-round is beginning to slow now. Have I stayed too long at the fair? I wanted to live in a carnival city with laughter and love everywhere. I wanted my friends to be thrilling and witty. I wanted someone to care. I found my blue ribbons all shiny and new, but now I've discovered them no longer blue. The merry-go-round is beginning to taunt me. Have I stayed too long at the fair? There's nothing to win and no one to want me. Have I stayed too long at the fair? Brothers and sisters, we don't need to linger too long at the vanity fairs of knowledge, the vanity fairs of power, the vanity fairs of popularity, even the vanity fairs of the American dream. No, the Word of God is there to guide us, and the Word of God is there to guard us, and we must admonish our people in this regard. But finally, faithful exposition also involves exhortation. Verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. John Piper reminds us in his wonderful book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, it is not the job of the Christian preacher to give people moral or psychological pep talks about how to get along in the world. Someone else can do that. Most of our people have no one in the world to tell them week in and week out about the supreme beauty and majesty of God. And I want to go back for just a moment and kind of just, again, be, a, be an instructor for just a second and then try to encourage you with, a, I think, a, a wonderful thought from uh, the pen of Tim Keller. When I preach the Bible and when I'm working the study, 
I always submit every biblical text to five questions. These five questions are always foremost in my mind as I'm working through the text and preparing a biblical message. I ask the first question. I think it is the first question. What does this text teach me about God? And that is the first question I always ask. Secondly, drawing from the insights of Brian Chappell and his book, Christ-Centered Preaching, I ask the question, what does this text teach us about fallen man? And I look for that uh, fallen condition focus, as uh, Brian emphasizes in his approach to preaching. Number three, I ask the question, what do I want my people to know? Question four, I ask the question, what do I want my people to do? But then question number five, and let me acknowledge, I did not always ask this question when I was in the past preaching through the Old Testament uh, in particular. Uh, In fact, I would argue that for many years, I probably handled the Old Testament in a way that a Jewish rabbi could have handled the Old Testament. And therefore, I was derelict in my responsibilities because I'm not a Jewish rabbi. I'm a Christian preacher. And therefore, whether it is in Genesis to Malachi or Matthew to Revelation, I'm always asking the question, how does this text point to Jesus? I came to this conviction in large part from the influence of a number of Presbyterian brethren. Uh, But because they were Presbyterian brethren, I had a little skepticism about their homiletical method. And so I wanted greater warrant than that. And so I went to the Bible and lo and behold... I came into contact once more with John chapter 5, verse 39, where Jesus says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify to me. And then I was reminded that on the road to Emmaus, in fact, twice in the 24th chapter of Luke, Jesus reminds us that the law and the prophets, and later the law and the prophets and the writings all testify to him. And therefore, if I handle the Bible like a Jewish rabbi, then I am mishandling the Bible and I'm not being a faithful preacher of the gospel and I'm not being a faithful preacher of the Christian truth. And so, again, I've been very appreciative in recent years of drawing from the insights of men like Voss and Gradanus and Goldsworthy and Keller. And in particular, Tim Keller has, I think, helped us think more carefully about what it means to have a healthy Stay with me now. A healthy, legitimate, Christocentric hermeneutic that can then lead to a healthy and legitimate Christocentric homiletic. And I think he probably said it as well as it could be said several years ago in an article in Theology in Quotes when he simply wrote this. It's all about Jesus and showed us, I think, with legitimacy and we can debate this around in just a few minutes, but showed us with legitimacy. How you can indeed see Jesus legitimately, truthfully, accurately in all of Scripture. And so as I read, you can look along up on the screen. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the wilderness, not the garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain by wicked hands, has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the better ark of Noah, who carries us safely through the wrath of God revealed from heaven and delivers us to a new earth. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all that is comfortable and familiar and go out into the world, not knowing where he went to create a new people of God. 
Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain of Calvary and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us. Because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with uh, the rod of God's justice, now gives us living water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Joshua, who leads us into a land of eternal rest and heavenly blessing. Jesus is the better ark of the covenant, who topples and disarms the idols of this world, going himself into enemy territory and making an open spectacle of them all. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. I like that one, by the way. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Daniel, having been lowered into a lion's den of death, emerges early the next morning, alive and vindicated by his God. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast into the storm so that we safely could be brought in. Jesus is the real. Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible really is not about you, is it? It really is all about him. And therefore, out of that kind of theological foundation, The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, can move to close. And so he says in verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. We could paraphrase it for our day when everything is said and done. In other words, what's the bottom line? What is the end game of all of this? And Solomon says it's really quite simple. It's twofold. Number one, fear God. And number two, keep his commandments. We might say it this way uh, in our Baptist context, trust And obey. And by the way, the order is crucial. Fear God. Allow God to occupy his proper place. Allow God to be on that throne in our lives and let his kingdom expand with us following in his lead and coming under his lordship and seeking to honor him in all that we do. We allow God to have his proper place And therefore, it puts to rest our fears and it puts to rest our selfish dreams and it puts in proper place our agenda, which becomes no agenda because the only agenda that now matters to us is God. Fear God. What does the text say about God? Keep his commandments. What does this text teach 
me about me. Keep his commandments. Obey him out of love and respect for who he is and what he has done. Again, to quote Tim Keller, accepted, I obey. It is not I, it is not I obey so that I can be accepted. What does Solomon say? <laughs> this is man's all. The NIV says it this way. This is the whole duty of man. And when I read that again, I could not help but be drawn to that great classic statement by the great theologian Augustine or Augustine, who said it so well. Thou hast made us for thyself and our heart is restless till it rests in thee. And therefore, we will never find rest until we come to rest in our Savior, whose name is Jesus. And so the text talks to us about why we are here. But the text also reminds us of what God will do. Verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. In other words, faithful proclamation of God's word will remind our people every action Every thought will indeed be exposed to the searchlight of God's judgment. Not one thing will escape every work and every action, every secret thing, good or bad. It will all come to light. One of my spiritual heroes and also preaching heroes is Dr. Stephen Olford. In fact, I can still remember as a seminary student at Southwestern, driving back and forth from Dallas uh, three days a week, sitting in a back seat with a handheld cassette player by my ear, listening to his verse-by-verse expositions through 2 Corinthians. In fact, I would listen and write out his outlines and take notes along the way. And even though at that time I was only about 23 or 24 years old, that experience has stayed with me all of these years. And I wept greatly when Dr. Olford departed this life and made his way into heaven. I was once in Dr. Olford's office and he had on the wall a plaque. And on that plaque contained words from one of his preaching heroes, Robert Murray McShane. And the plaque simply said this, Lord... Make us as holy as a saved sinner can be. And I thought, you know what? Those are good words from a great preacher. And those are good words for any preacher who understands the awesome assignment that he has been given by God. Cotton Mather, the American Puritan, I think, accurately assessed this holy assignment that you and I have. And I close with this. The office of the Christian ministry rightly understood is the honorable and most important that any man in the whole world can ever sustain. And it will be one of the wonders and employments of eternity to consider the reasons why this wisdom and goodness of God assign this office to imperfect and guilty man. We are imperfect and we are guilty. And therefore, if we're going to have anything to say that is of any eternal significance, it will be the word. And therefore, let the word be the instruction, let the word be the admonition, and let the word be the exhortation that you bring week in and week out to your people. And I believe God indeed will honor our feeble efforts, and God will bless far beyond what we could ever hope or imagine, because the power is not in you or me, but the power is in the upright words, the words of truth given to us 
by one shepherd. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the words of the preacher, Koheleth Solomon. Lord, I had read them many times, but never stopped to really dive into them to see just what might be there. And Lord, I have been wonderfully encouraged uh, in my own thinking about preaching over these years. And Lord, I do believe that what we say is of utmost importance. But I do believe it matters how we say it. And so, Lord, may we indeed be faithful expositors of your word. Conveying sacred truth in a wonderful and winsome way. Not that people will say, look how great is my preacher. That is an abysmal failure. But they would say, indeed, because the word of God has gripped their hearts. Look at what a great God I worship and I serve. Lord, may that indeed be the heartbeat of every one of us. That we would indeed be found faithful. As those who proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Brother, thank you for for preaching to us today. You brought up a lot of important themes. Let's just begin by thinking about the basic thesis sentence that you laid out. And let's uh, troll through these guys and see what we get here. What you say is more important than how you say it. Nobody's going to disagree with that, I don't think. Uh, but how you say it has never been more important. Any thoughts on that, Greg, Sabidi, or Mike? Well, I, I was helped by that because um, I think part of what I, I hope to wrestle with a little bit tomorrow is um, the ways in, in which sometimes eloquence gets exalted over content. And, and eloquence or, or particular style, sermonic style, um, become almost an end in itself in, in some sort of cultural expressions of preaching um so i was i was i just want to thank you because i was particularly helped by that and reminded that we're craftsmen of a sort you know the the choice of words is is an important uh undertaking in in the preaching and i don't know that in my own preaching uh, i give enough prayer and thought uh to that so that i was i was instructed by that and helped by that brother yeah, I was helped by it too. I think it's a, I think it's very true. I'm uh, as I as I preach at Capitol Hill and, and some other places. I'm uh, I'm often reminded of just how big and powerful the the English language is. Uh, there are just incredible ways that you can you can use the English language to make a point, so that it it, it doesn't hit your congregation so much like a club over the head, as like a rapier. Uh, you, you can use it in incredible ways. I, I think it's, uh, I, I think it's uh, when you say that how you say it is very important. I would say that the, way, that the way you're supposed to say the gospel or whatever it is that you're teaching is in such a way that the gospel itself is exalted optimally. And ironically, you can, use, you can, ha- you can have a situation where you're using so much eloquence and using so much rhetoric that that goal is actually, you're actually falling short of that goal. So you have to be careful of that, too. And that would be part of the importance of how you say something. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Mike? Yeah, thank you for that. I I was struck by the the fire, being set on fire, the logic set on fire, and was struck by the fact that I think the people in my congregation can tell if that sermon has run through my heart first. And, And I think I've been guilty at times of getting up and saying things that, that are true but, but haven't been uh, connected to my own heart. And I think that 
there's no fire there. And so I'm thankful for that reminder. The reason this is an issue with me in part is several years ago, there was a man that's an atheist. Name's Mike Bryan. Wrote a book called Chapter and Verse, A Skeptic Revisits Christianity. And he spent six months at Crystal College going to classes, going to pastor's conferences, going on a mission trip, just lived with us, and then wrote a book which actually nearly got torpedoed by Random House because it wasn't critical enough. He, he actually, he, did, he, did not, he has not become a believer, but he became a friend to many of us. And uh, he went to a pastor's conference one time and came back and said, wow, man, these are some of the most incredible communicators I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they ought to be on uh, nighttime television. He said, now, they don't say much, but, boy, they are really good at not saying much. <laughs> and so I realized out of my historic Baptist upbringing, we really have uh, developed some incredible orators who don't say very much. The counterfeit for me among many in the Reformed tradition is they say a lot. They just don't say it well. And I don't think it has to be either or. I, I cannot agree more with, uh, with uh, Greg and Thabiti. You do not want eloquence to get in the way of the gospel. But if you can get up there to come back to Lloyd-Jones and preach the gospel with no passion, no zeal, no fire, and just kind of... Throw it out there like a boring lecture that you may hear in a classroom at a seminary or a college. Shame on you. How, how can you do that? Because it is the most glorious, exciting, wonderful message in the world. And that ought to move us to deliver it passionately. Uh, eloquence is okay if it's, again, tempered uh, by the word and tempered by a humble spirit. But, you know, again, for me, I don't want to get up there and butcher a message with us and does and, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, little little things that just suck the energy and life out of the message. Herschel York, again, has been very helpful to me here because Herschel says, you know, why would we dare preach the word of God poorly? And so I do think there is a, uh, a calling upon us to take whatever it is that God's given us, ever how he's wired us, and to try to maximize that for his glory. And, and one of the things, and I'll stop. You know, when I teach preaching, one of the first things I do at the beginning of the semester is I put up on the board names like, I'll go, his, come forward, uh, W.A. Criswell, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, Stephen Olford, Adrian Rogers, um, today, Mark Dever, The Beatty, uh, Mark Driscoll, John Piper, Alistair Begg, uh, and I can keep going. And, and I point out all of these names represent men who are very different. Their styles are different. But I would argue each of them is a very faithful and engaging expositor. In other words, there is a reason that I like listening to them. And so I think that is something that we do not want to neglect. Do we want to exalt it so that, again, I become this unbelievable communicator who just doesn't? No, 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 no. But I do want to be the most effective communicator of gospel truth and biblical truth that I can possibly be. Now, you, you, you used a kind of, maybe even a, some people might think of it as a throwaway line in your message that I've, I've heard from others. Uh, and you've just kind of reinforced it now. And I just want to go around and see what guys think about it. Is it a sin to preach a boring sermon? Is it a sin to preach a boring sermon? And you're saying certainly. But certainly foolish and wrong. Yeah. 
Well, you said sin, so I'm just yeah. going to camp on that. Maybe, maybe, maybe I want to pull back from sin. Well, no, brother, I would encourage you to stay there, but let's just think about it for a moment. Let's kick that around. Yeah, is it a go. sin to preach a boring sermon, Mike? Uh, not in the sense of a violation of God's norms, but it, it could be an indication of a sinful pattern in your life of not uh, of preaching something, as I said, that you haven't listened to yourself. So, but n- Really, I mean, that's the best I'm going to get out of this. Foolish and unwise, yes. That's sin, it. No. Wow. Thabiti? Since you wanted to be interesting, yes, it's a sin. (laughs) I mean, Danny said it when he said it. Did you think he was right? Yes. You know what he means. Say what? It was a rhetorical flourish. You know what he means. I agree with what he meant by it. What's the purpose of preaching? I mean, what... I mean, think of the, 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 the catechism, what's the, or, or in Ecclesiastes 12, what's the whole duty of man? Uh, in the catechism, why are we made? What do we make? To, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And can you think of an activity most directly aimed at glorifying God, more directly aimed at glorifying God than preaching? And so if we come to the preaching task and it's just flat and there's nothing there, there's no theology set on fire coming through a man or no man set on fire by that theology, there's something very wrong with that. And, and, it, and at least it's very close. Okay, but let's say that you've worked hard on a sermon and maybe it's been a long week and you're tired and you get up there and you preach and if anybody's going to be honest, that sermon was boring. Is that a sin? Have you sinned in doing that? Well, I would say this. You didn't sin if you saw the anointing and filling of the Spirit and you did what you did that morning to the best of your God-given ability, given the circumstances. And I just have a theological conviction that those are those times when the Spirit will step in just as He does when we don't know how to pray. He'll step in when we don't preach very well and overcome that. He overcomes it not because I was being lazy and because I was being derelict in developing my skills. I was just having... The pressures of the ministry that week crushed me. Well, what a great time to be even more dependent. And I have to admit, Mark, there have been times where when I did, preached in that kind of way, I felt horrible about it. And yet God used it, and I think he used it in spite of myself. But he used it in part, well, one, because he honors his word. But two, he knew my heart. He knew I, wasn't, I hadn't been uh, uh, irresponsible all week. I'd just been beat up by life and ministry all week. Yeah. Greg, thoughts? I don't, I don't know if it's a high-handed sin, but it's, a cert- it's certainly a falling short of what the gospel would require of us. And I think I agree with Mike, too, that it, it, it certainly probably does uh, point to some sort of lack of what you're preaching having drilled itself into your heart. So if a brother is just, okay, so we're all going to, it seems like we're all allowing for, yeah, one-offs or extenuating circumstances. But if a brother regularly is preaching boring sermons... Does that mean he shouldn't be preaching regularly? Well, would you not with your group, if you have, when y'all do the, and by the way, I'm a huge fan of evaluation. I, I emphasize, even if they don't have a group like you do, I try to encourage my students to find godly men in their church that they know love them and want to see them excel for the glory of God to make themselves accountable to them in critique of their preaching. Mm. Well, if week after week after week, you're just dull and dry and boring then it seems to me that you would be well served to try to take steps to overcome that. And maybe you need to take a class on public speaking. Maybe you need to take a class on how to use your voice. Maybe you need to take a class where someone is, I mean, 
it's not by accident that Whitfield was followed by actors all over America because of the way he delivered the truth. Now, we can come back and say, well, look at Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is often misrepresented as being this guy that had his face in a manuscript and just talked in a monotone. That's probably an inaccurate representation of what Edwards did. And so I think when we look at these great men of God that the Lord used mightily, almost without exception, from Chrysostom all the way up to Spurgeon until Billy Graham, they all were dynamic, effective communicators. But I don't think any of them allowed, and you made the good point, they did not allow, and the BDD, they did not allow their eloquence to get in the way of the gospel. But they were good communicators. Otherwise, nobody would come listen to them. Yeah. So it's possible that rather than just training, they just need to get out of the ministry. Spurgeon said there's some people in the ministry that ought not to be in the ministry because he believed if they were not effective in the pulpit, God had not called them to preach. Yeah. I think Spurgeon was probably right. And again, Mark, let me say, that doesn't mean you have the uh, eloquence, and I'll pick on the, the easiest one, of an Adrian Rogers. I've never known anyone to have the eloquence, the voice, and, but you don't have to have that. John MacArthur, who's a dear friend to me, he's not the most scintillating orator, no. but he is a good, faithful Bible teacher that does have a delivery no. that's engaging and effective. Otherwise... They would not be sending out a million CDs a year, and there wouldn't be thousands coming to hear. They just, they just would, that would not have happened. You mentioned that you heard early on somebody tell you good preachers listen to great preachers. Mm-hmm. Is that so? Do you, you listen to preaching much? All the time. If no, I'm yeah. out walking around the campus, which my students will tell you, I always have an iPod in my hand and earphones on, and either I'm listening to Christian music, or more often than not, I'm listening to preaching. And, and I'm just listening because it feeds. I need to have my own soul fed. And if, for example, I were going to be preparing a message on Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14, I would be scanning out there not only books that I'd be reading, commentaries and other things, I would try to find people that had preached on that text, not to preach their messages. I, I am a, and we can talk about the sin of plagiarism, and it is a sin, uh, but uh, not, no debate. And, and I don't care what some people say about it. It is sinful to preach somebody else's stuff and peddle it off as your own. Um, I want to hear how they deal with it. Because they may make a statement, they may have an insight, that I, they, they may, you know, just something about it, it allows me to kind of let myself get immersed in the world of that particular text. And what's the difference between reading someone and listening to someone as far as them impacting you and your development of a message? I don't see any difference. Greg, do you listen to preaching? Yeah, I do, quite when, a bit. When do you have time to listen to preaching? Uh, when you're, when I'm running or working out or in the mornings or... Lots of different times. So I listen to I listen to you every time you preach at Capitol Hill, but then beyond that, I listen to John Piper, John MacArthur, Lick Duncan. Uh-huh. Lee, what about you, brother? Um, I, I wish I had time to listen to more, but yeah, I do listen to preachers. I mean, I, I listen to Bentley Robinson, an assistant pastor here, uh, faithful brother in our own church. I like listening to the men in our own church, mm. uh, open the word. Um, I listen to you. Uh, one of the ways the Lord uses you is you, you make me think in your preaching, you know, in good ways and fresh ways. I listen, as many people here, to, to John Piper. Um, John makes me feel, uh, and, and as well as think. I, I appreciate that. His message, you know, at T4G, I think it was last year, ex, um, Expository Exaltation, mm-hmm. where he talked about exactly this, that it can't be boring, that a good exposition has to reflect emotionally the text as well as on this point. Uh, I listened to a, a dear brother, to, to many of us here, John, John Fulmer, 
uh, pastor of a church in Dubai. I, John is probably as precise in his language as, as anybody I've I've heard. Who is this? Uh, John, John Fulmer, United uh, Christian Church of Dubai. Okay. Yeah, it's just very precise. I, I, I love. He doesn't waste words. We're talking about the use of words. He doesn't waste words, and there, there's a particular kind of power and eloquence in that. Um, Lloyd Jones, um, the Recording Trust, um, will be something else. Mike. Yeah, I'm uh, 10, 15 a week. Probably always have my iPod on. 10 or 15 a week. Yeah, it's on the same thing. If, if How I'm do you not, do that? I mean, just the day is full of dead time. Mowing the lawn, at the gym, in the car, at the Xerox machine. So it's it's really helpful. I I, I listen to people who uh, I listen to people preach the same passage, but I wait until after I've preached it, just because I. Then I go back and despair about all the ways I've messed up, but uh, just to make sure I don't have any kind of drift over. Uh, but I find it very instructive to listen to, uh, particularly Tim Keller, preach the passage I preached and sort of see the insights. It helps me think about the next text. Why, why would you listen to talk radio in your automobile when you can listen to good godly preaching? I just don't get it. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I just don't get it. And so you've got time in the car. You've got time when you're shaving. You've got time when you're walking. I, I'm like, uh, my, I'm grabbing, because, again, we're so busy. So I'm grabbing any time I can to listen to good, godly men that feed my soul and also give me insight both in terms of what they say, but how they say. I mean, Mark, I'm always asking myself, why do I like listening to John MacArthur? Why do I like listening to John Piper, David Platt, Mark Driscoll, Alistair Begg, yourself, Andy Davis? I keep going for a long Why do I like listening to them? And the answer always comes back, one, they have something to say, and two, they say it well. And every one of them does. And so, again, I can't be like any one of them. I shouldn't try to be like any one of them. But I ought to strive to be the most effective communicator of biblical truth I can for the glory of God. I, I don't see how you could think any other way than that. Uh, just, okay, you've each named some various names. Just eat, pick two with a slight comment on each one. Explain to the folks what, what listening to this person seems to contribute to your preaching. So pick out just each a couple. Greg? So I'm not asking if you're two favorite. That might be too hard. But just pick two different preachers and, and name one. And you can't, once a name is used, then nobody else can use it. So. I'll start. All right. I love, well, I just don't know why. That's why he's the president of an institution. I just, I think about this all the time because of what I do. Uh, it's new. I love hearing David Platt. Now, David Platt is odd. He has a, a speech impediment. But he is so passionate, and there is such an authenticity to what comes out of his mouth. I just hang on it. I mean, I'm telling you, he is going to be a great blessing to Southern Baptists and really the greater evangelical world. He's 30 years old. I know. I told John Piper he needs to meet him. He's like his son he's never met. He needs yeah, to really absolutely. meet that guy. Exactly. In fact, Alan Mosey said he is a young uh, Southern Baptist version of John Piper. I think that's a very uh, accurate assessment. Um, Adrian Rogers is still my hero. Just the, the, he was a godly man. I knew he walked with the Lord. And he had just an ability, a wisdom and a wit to package things in a way that were memorable and stayed with you. I mean, you put him over here and David Platt over here, but I'm equally blessed by both of their ministries. All right. My couple of specific preachers and what they contribute to you and your thing about preaching. Uh, Matt Chandler um, down in, uh, in Texas. Uh, Particularly uh, good communicator mm -hmm. and, and does an outstanding job uh, identifying things.
things that his, that his uh, audience's hearers would misunderstand about the text, ways in which their life would reflect misunderstandings, uh, st saying things in a way that you think, okay, I'm going to file that away, and I'm totally going to use that as a way of explaining yeah. sin. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, he just has really uh, excellent ways of communicating ideas that people don't want to hear. So I really, really benefit from Jesus that. wants the rose. Yeah. Um, great story. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other would be Tim Keller. So, uh, yeah, just. And what is Tim contributing to your, your preaching or your understanding of preaching? Uh, particularly his ability to see Jesus everywhere and, uh, yeah. and to communicate that in a way that uh, he, he's excellent at looking at a text in a way you never thought of and seeing things you never saw, uh, not making things up, but just sort of uh, unearthing gems that you didn't, you didn't see there. Tabidi? I, I gave you mine earlier. Um, John Fulmer, uh, just precision, clarity. That's F-O-L-M-A-R, if and you're taking you listen notes. to stuff online? Stuff is online. Okay. Um, UCCD, okay. no, org, I think, or .com. It's an international expat church in Dubai, yeah. in the Middle East. Um, so just very, very precise, very clear, um, great use of white space in his preaching, um, theologically rich, uh, so that content you were rightly hammering. Um, I, I like listening to him for, for, for those kinds of things. I learned from John. Um, learned from, it's obvious, I learned from Piper. Um, again, Piper's sort of clarity and precision and, and, and focus just explodes uh -huh. in the preaching in a way that you know I think his I think his affections are genuine. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's not he's not conjuring a stage show, but but he's sort of theology on fire coming through a man. Um, and so I appreciate that um, and and learn from that as well. Amen. Great. I'd say first of all, uh, Michael Lawrence, associate pastor at Capitol Hill, precisely Dr. Aiken, because of the way he does so well that last question that you talked about. How does this text point to Christ? Oh, he is good. Uh, the brother just understands the the architecture of Scripture. He sees how the covenants fit together, and he he makes his way to Jesus from every text, very early and deeply, and it's it's wonderful to to hear. Another one I would mention is uh, Al Mohler, who is I think the best preacher of Jesus' parables, no, no offense, yours was great too, but I think Dr. Moeller, I think, is the, I think he's the best preacher of Jesus' parables that I've ever seen. He just, he seems, to, he seems to grasp the humor in the parables, which is everywhere. The parables are hilarious when you understand the, the expectations that the people would have had and the way Jesus just kind of gets in there and messes with them. And Dr. Mueller just pulls that out so wonderfully. I, I love listening to him yeah. there. Yeah. What, what about you, Brad? I don't, I don't really listen to preaching. Uh, just because I'm, I'm not... Is, is that a sin? Is that a sin, yeah. <laughs> it's foolish. <laughs> I mean, I listen to preaching at conferences like this, and I enjoy that. Uh, and when I'm on the elliptical, that's true, right? Okay, then, so I've been watching John Piper's video series on God is the Gospel and loving that. Okay. So I certainly benefit from other preachers. It's just, I'm not, I don't use iPods much, and I'm not, I, my commute is from the third floor to the second floor, and I'm just, there's not much of that dead space you're talking about, Mike. Can, uh, can I give you one more? Yeah, yeah. I do love listening to Sinclair Ferguson. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yes. You know, I, just, just not just the accent, but just the beauty. <laughs> I mean, you know, just, just the, the beauty of cross. Well, that's like Alistair Begg. Alistair's accent just makes you know good. It's such an advantage for him in our context. But again, there's such wonderful content there as well. But yet Sinclair was here a couple of you helped get him here yeah. and David Hogg and he was phenomenal. Wow. Um, one just to name one, a preacher that's very well known in England and not so well known over here is Dick Lucas. Dick's eighty four, I think mm-hmm. now. He was a minister for forty years at St. Helens Bishopsgate, right in the middle of London, sort of like the wall in the Wall Street kind of district in London. Um, the financial community. And he very much like John Stott, sort of uh, across the city, he was uh, or he is, he was preaching this last Sunday at Charlotte Chapel at the installation for Paul Reese, a new pastor there in Edinburgh. But Dick is amazingly good at looking at the text, just very plainly, straightforwardly, and yet in a way that is very interesting. I remember hearing him preach. I don't know if you were with us then when we were at Alistair Begg's Basics Conference a few years ago. Anyway, Dick was one of the preachers. And he preached uh, from Mark's Gospel, and the, the way he concluded it, did not draw attention to himself at all, but was just incredibly dramatic and poignant. And he just, he sort of, he, he left it saying, you know, and, and, and there it is, then, then Christ has done it all for us. No sins left to be accounted for, nothing. Christ has done it all for us. And then he just closed his Bible and, and, and left. And he, he has an amazing ability to to bring a text to life without doing some of the louder kind of rhetoric that Americans are used to, uh, but letting the text itself do that. And I've really benefited from listening to him over the years.